Tonight I'd like to talk about how concentration fits into the overall path of Buddhist practice and how we explore turning our concentration towards insight, towards understanding, towards wisdom. And to explore this, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the Buddha's own journey. When he was a young man, he had this sense of, why am I looking for happiness in places where it doesn't seem very reliable? Here I am, a human being. I'm subject to aging, sickness, and death. And the ways I'm searching for happiness is in searching for connections with things that are also subject to aging, sickness, and death. So how far is that going to get me? So he had this question. This was kind of a a motivating question for him. And uh, when he was, I think when he was about 29 years old, he left his home and went in search of an answer to this question. And so he explored various teachings that were available in the day. There was a, a very vibrant spiritual scene in India at the time that the Buddha lived. Many teachers teaching a lot of different tools for what they were hoping to be a form of liberation. And so there were various teachers proclaiming that they had found ways towards liberation, ways towards freedom. And the Buddha went in search of these people and studied with them. So the first two teachers that he met taught very deep states of concentration as a way towards freedom. Freedom from the suffering that was present in the here and now. And the Buddha explored these and learned very deeply these teachings of how to concentrate the mind and become very blissful, very, very refined states of bliss, of peace, of ease. And given that his motivation was, how can I be free of completely free of suffering, that that he saw that, again, seeking happiness in things that were subject to aging, sickness and death, or impermanence, that that wasn't the way. And so in his exploration of these concentration states, he found that as after he emerged from these concentration states, these states themselves were subject to impermanence. And so they weren't the answer to his question. So having learned what he could learn from these teachers, he decided, this is not the way. And then he went off to practice some very severe ascetic practices, another set of practices that were available in his day. He practiced some... I, didn't, I, I almost brought the book, but in the interest of time, I decided I wouldn't read this whole section to you. I'll just summarize it. So he practiced this form of concentration of breathing practice where he basically stopped the breathing. He said, I stopped the breathing in my, my, my nose, my mouth, and my ears. And by doing that, he, he experienced what he called racking pains. <sighs> pains in his head, pains in his belly. He described it as if he's being carved up by, you know, somebody with a knife was carving up his belly or this strap being bound around his head. So, you know, this was extremely painful um, experience. So he went from the bliss of the concentration to this just racking pain, trying to do this practice of stopping up his breathing. And so, you know, this is a, an indication for you. Don't try to make your breathing stop. <laughs> doesn't doesn't lead to uh, bliss. <laughs> um, and so the Buddha decided, well, this doesn't seem to work very well, so maybe I'll try some other practices. And then he decided to stop eating, that maybe if he stopped eating, he would liberate his, himself from, from suffering. And so he kind of reduced his, his, the, the food that he took in. And he got down, it said he got down to one grain of rice a day. 
and um, he lost tremendous amount of weight. And his description of himself is that his um, his hair began to fall off his body when he rubbed his limbs. His hair would come off his body. Um, that his backbone was like beads sticking out. That when he touched his belly, he could touch his spine. So very, you know, very emaciated. And, you know, he's here he is on the door of death, basically, about ready to die. And he's like, this doesn't seem to be the way either. <laughs> so he... He, you know, has, at that point, he seems to have a kind of reflection. He's, he's like just about on death's door. And he's like, what might be the way? So this, you know, this question comes into his mind. And what appears to him is a memory. A memory of a time when he was younger, when he was a boy, watching his father do a ritual plowing festival. His father was the local um, king in the in the area and he he was watching his father do this ritual festival and as he was observing this he was sitting under the shade of a tree and he spontaneously fell into a blissful state of concentration um, basically in in the terrain of the first jhana an embodied blissful state and as he remembered that he thought to himself, is this the way? And then he had this recognition, yes, this is the way. Why should I be afraid of pleasure that is wholesome? And so this is interesting, I think, because the very first practices he did were heading in this direction of bliss, right? The concentration practices he did. And so this has been an interesting question for me. What did he see in that moment as the difference? Because he had, he had been practicing with these teachers, practicing very deep states of concentration, and had decided that's not the way. And then in reflecting back, he thought, hmm, maybe this is the way. This is the way. It came to him with some certainty. This is the way. And so reading further in what happened, he nourished himself so he became healthy again. And then he began exploring the um, the the four jhana states, concentrating his mind to these um, to the depth of of peace, tranquility, equanimity, and then the key here, I think, that that helps us to understand what he learned or what he um, found or what he he intuited, I guess, is more what it is. What he intuited is that as he, the, the description in the suttas is, I purified my mind, concentrated my mind until it was malleable, bright. And then I turned that mind to, to the destruction of the causes of suffering. So he basically, I think the key piece that he recognized is that the early teachers that he went to were teaching the concentration states as an end in themselves. That that was, that the states that were attained, the very deep, deep states of concentration in which the body completely falls away, there's no experience of body, very refined states of mental stillness, tranquility. That those states themselves were not the freedom that he was looking for, but that he found or thought of a different way of using that rather than using it as an end in itself to use the concentration as a tool to explore this question of what is suffering? How is it caused? Is it possible for it to come to an end? And so he turned his concentrated mind towards this question. So this is, I think, the real key. The thing thing that he, the shift that he found, the shift that he contributed, is that this, this concentrated mind can be used as a tool. It's not the end, but it is a very powerful tool. He said to his 
followers. Cultivate concentration. One who cultivates concentration sees things as they actually are. So concentration in our practice, in our path, in the Buddhist path, is developed and cultivated in the service of liberation, in the service of freedom. So this is the, the, the direction I'd like to explore. How do we turn this concentration towards freedom? How do we use this concentration in the service of liberation? And this for me can be very inspiring as well at times when I'm in practicing concentration. I can get into some very beautiful states and it's kind of like, well, why am I doing this? You know, what, I, we, I've heard the question, what's, what's this about? You know, what, wh- why do this? You know, what, what is the point? I remind myself, the point is that this supports liberation. It is in the service of liberation. And that can give me the inspiration to continue with the concentration. So to talk about this, to talk about how concentration is used in the service of liberation, I'd like to review, to remind you of something that we've already explored a little bit. So I'll just, this will just be a, a quick review of the different kinds of concentration. The concentration that we've been mostly encouraging, cultivating this, this week, these past days, has been a one-pointed concentration. The concentration where we're stabilizing our, our mind on one object. The object becomes more and more still as we do this, and that stillness stills the mind. So the emphasis in this kind of concentration practice is instilling the mind. Then there is the a kind of concentration that's we talk about with respect to the insight practice, the kind of concentration that in which the mind is stable the awareness is stable, non-reactive, but there's changing experience. That the, the mind is non-reactive to the flow of changing experience. So there's a stability of the mind, but the objects are no longer still. So this kind of concentration, this moment-to-moment concentration, also can get very, very strong. All the jhanic factors that we've talked about are cultivated in the process of attending to experience moment after moment after moment. The continuity of awareness is what cultivates the stability of mind rather than the, um, the continuity on one object. So the mind recognizes moment after moment, seeing body sensation, a sound, an emotion, a thought, a sight, another body sensation. It's just an endless flow, but the mind is picking up moment after moment on the changing nature of experience. So this also creates the stability of mind where the jhanic factors are all strong and the hindrances fall away. So there is that bliss of seclusion in this kind of concentration as well. The factor of ekagata, the one-pointedness, the unification of mind. In the moment-to-moment concentration, it's not one-pointed on one object. It is the one-pointedness or the stability is in the awareness. The awareness is stable so that it is not... It, the awareness doesn't pick up on any object and then go following it out, following out with thoughts and ideas and views and opinions about it. Something arises, it is ar- arises and it's known. It passes. Another thing arises, it arises and it's, it's known. That stability, the ekagata, is the stability of the awareness. So 
So this second form of concentration, the concentration that can be attentive to changing experience, this is the kind of concentration that allows us to penetrate into things as they are. This statement that the Buddha made, cultivate concentration. One who cultivates concentration sees things as they are. So the second kind of concentration is the kind of concentration that begins to penetrate into how experience is ever-changing, ever-flowing. How that ever-flowing experience is completely unreliable as a place where we can find happiness. That there's nothing we can hang on to in that flow of experience that will be the thing that will do it for us. So the unreliability of experience. We see the fact that everything that's happening is simply a process of change of causes and conditions. There's no abiding, lasting anything. Nothing that we can call self, me, or mine. So this kind of concentration, this moment-to-moment concentration, is the kind of concentration that can see these truths. So the absorption concentration, the concentration of the stillness of mind, where the mind settles into the one-pointedness, produces very blissful states, produces great stillness, very much sharpens the mind, refines its ability to meet subtler and subtler experience. And yet the stillness that we come to in that is not... There, the, the change is not so obvious in there. The change is not what's happening. And so that kind of absorption concentration doesn't, well, it leads to very blissful states. It doesn't lead to the kind of insight that will free us. The key thing that begins to liberate us is the turning the mind towards change. So the concentration, as we employ the concentration as a tool, we turn the concentrated mind towards changing experience. This is actually the key distinction between what we would call concentration practice and vipassana practice. In concentration practice, we are inclining the mind towards stillness. We're not inclining the mind towards change. We're not inclining the mind to see all the subtlety of the changing nature of the breath. We're inclining towards stillness, more and more stillness. In Vipassana practice, we turn our attention towards change. So this is the key distinction between concentration practice and mindfulness practice. With the concentrated mind we can use that concentrated mind to turn towards change. As the more concentrated the mind becomes, the more refined the concentration becomes, the more clearly it can see change if we choose to turn that concentrated mind towards change. So that is the turning that we are exploring at this point in the retreat. We've been cultivating concentration for these number of days. And in the instructions tomorrow, we will offer the suggestion to begin to turn this concentration that we've been cultivating towards changing experience. So there's a couple of ways to explore this. I'll just mention them briefly here. We'll go into these more over the next days. One of the ways to do this is So you've been cultivating your attention on the breath, staying with the breath, inclining the mind more and more towards stillness. 
one of the ways to explore this turning towards change is to open up, essentially to let go of the focus on the breath and open up to the six sense doors. Open up to the fact that seeing is happening, hearing is happening, body sensations are happening, smelling, tasting, and all of the uh, events happening in the mind. So we, we can open up to the changing flow of experience. This can sometimes feel a little jarring <laughs> after you've been really still to just kind of say, well, let me just let go of the breath and open to changing experience. So we can kind of do an intermediate step if you wish. And actually it's sufficient. Um, the practice of mindfulness of breathing is the practice of turning the attention the concentrated mind from the stillness around the breathing to the changing experience of the breathing. This practice of mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha said, this can take you all the way to liberation. But it's not going to take you all the way if you just settle into more and more and more stillness, into absorbed states of concentration. You need to turn to the changing nature of the breath, the changing nature of the mind as it meets the breath the instructions that Temple was talking about the other day in the Anapanasati Sutta. So we can turn, we can open to the flow of broad experience or we can also open to the change of the breath and the change in the mind, how the mind changes as the breath moves. Noticing how various factors arise in the mind and are cultivated. So we turn towards change, allowing ourselves to begin to explore experience, whether the flow of experience of all of, all of our senses or the uh, changing nature of the breath. And in that turning towards our experience, the changing nature of experience. The concentrated mind has the capacity to just, again, be with this change, to not be reactive to the change, to just witness this flow. So it allows us to open to insight. Insight into what? What is the insight that we are exploring. Vipassana, the term vipassana, usually translated as insight, means something along the lines of the, the, the V part, the, the first syllable, the V part. Sayadaw Upandita says it means something along the lines of various things. And the pasana part means to see clearly into. So the term vipassana means to see clearly into various things. And the various things, Upandita, Saira Upandita said that that the various things that that refers to, that first syllable refers to, is impermanence, suffering, unreliability, and not self. So this is the terrain of insight to come back to the perspective from which the Buddha was asking his question. I think that's always helpful to come back to what was the Buddha, you know, what was his motivation? What was his aspiration? What was the direction he was coming from? His quest was, is there an end to suffering? Is there an end to distress, dissatisfaction, unease? he found through his exploration that the core cause of this suffering is basically wanting things to be some other way than they are. He found that the wanting things to be some other way than they are is based in three basic factors of mind, greed, aversion, and delusion.
And in his exploration, he found, in, in studying, his whole study was around, well, what's happening? And what's the cause of that? Well, if there's suffering and the cause of that is greed, aversion, and delusion, how might I bring greed, aversion, and delusion to an end? If I can bring the cause of suffering to an end, then suffering should come to an end. It was very logical. So he began that exploration, and he found that possibility. He found the possibility for freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. And that is enlightenment. I mean, maybe it doesn't sound so glorious. I mean, we think of enlightenment as being floating blissful on clouds somewhere, you know. I don't know what we think of it as, but it's blinding flashes of light and showers of bliss, and I don't know what we think, but something along those lines. But no greed, no aversion, no delusion sounds pretty mundane in a way. But here's, the, here's some of the descriptions from the suttas. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This, indeed, is called nibbana. Nibbana being the term for liberation, extinction of suffering. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain or grief. Imagine that. Just imagine that. No mental pain or grief. That sounds pretty good. This is Nibbana immediate, visible in this life inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. To me, that's very inspiring. You know, enlightenment maybe seems like some far-off thing, distant. The absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion, the possibility that that is visible in this life. So the insight into suffering, the insight into the cause of suffering, the insight into ignorance. These are the insights that we explore. So deep at the root of greed, aversion, and delusion is this ignorance. What is this ignorance? Our usual definition of ignorance is something like not really being aware of something, you know, not knowing something, not, not having some kind of information. Just kind of a passive not knowing. We sometimes think about ignorance as being kind of a passive not having some kind of information. The ignorance of... The ignorance that's at the root of greed, aversion, and delusion is, is far more insidious than a passive form of not knowing. It actually is an active way that our minds engage with the world, misunderstanding things, misinterpreting things. We walk through life confused. Because of that confusion, we think that having things will make us happy. We think that getting rid of things that we don't like will make us happy. So this ignorance, this fundamental ignorance, distorts the way we maneuver through our lives. So there are three, there are three primary distortions. And these will be familiar. I've been mentioning them. The Buddha talks about three of the primary distortions or fundamental misunderstandings that we have in the way that we move through life is that we take what is impermanent to be permanent. We take what is unreliable as a source of happiness to be reliable. We take what is not self to be self. 
And this is kind of, you know, this is human. This is not, this is not, um, you know, individual, personal. This is, this is kind of the way we are set up as human beings in a way that these misunderstandings are wired into our, our nervous system in a way. But fortunately, they are not hardwired into our nervous system these misunderstandings. They are, it is possible to see through them. So taking what is impermanent to be permanent. Some of the ways that this happens for us, I mean, one of the kind of most, um, kind of almost innocuous ways that this happens is that things are changing really fast. You know, the, the, our, in our experience, actually, in, in all of reality, the level of change is happening so fast that it is masked because of that very rapidity. It's kind of like um, there's an analogy given somewhere either in the suttas or in the commentary about impermanence. And, and there's this analogy of, uh, of someone holding a fire stick, which is a, you know, a stick with some fire on the end of it, and whirling around in a circle. And just envision what that happens. I used to do this as a kid, with a kid with sparklers, you know, just whirling around in a circle. And, and the illusion that's created that a circle is in the air because of the, uh, the fast, the, you're moving the, the fire so fast that the, the mind sees the, creates the illusion of a cont- continuous circle. So the rapidity of the movement actually creates this illusion that there's something there, that there's some, some permanent kind of thing there. So that's one way that, that uh, impermanence is masked because things are actually changing really rapidly. Another way that impermanence is masked is more in our psyches. It's that we put concept onto our experience. And we relate to things through concept. So, you know, for example, just, you know, put your attention in your hand for a moment. Feel your hand, feel the sensations in your hand. Close your eyes and don't look at your hand right now. You know, just feel the sensations. Feel the vibration, the pulsing, the tingling. There's a variety of changing experience there. And then, now open your eyes and look at hand. Think about it as a hand. What hands do... What happens to the immediacy of that sensation as you do that? For me, I find it removes me from it. That, that the concept, the idea of hand overlaid on the experience removes me from the dynamic changing nature of that experience. So this is another way that impermanence is masked. We put concepts onto experience and relate to the world through concept. This is, a, this is very useful. You know, the, we couldn't live without concepts, you know. If, if we only lived in, you know, things like the, the experience of like particles of sight and had to, every time we walked into this room, construct people and chairs and floor and walls like oh wow look at all this change if we had to do that every time we walked around we wouldn't get very far so concept is really really useful but we need to see it for what it is it's not solid it is a fleeting idea the concept itself is impermanent unsubstantial unreliable so these are ways that impermanence is masked And then taking what is unsatisfactory as being satisfactory. We, in our um, way that we've lived our lives, until we really meet a spiritual practice, we go about our lives 
mostly trying to construct a world that will suit our desires. We try to find ways to arrange the world so that we have more of what we like, we have less of what we don't like. And the way that we've been trained, the way that our culture has encouraged us, is that having what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, is happiness. And while we see at some level that it's not very reliable, we do see that. What we feel happiness would be is if we can somehow manage to maneuver our environments such that within the changing experience, knowing that, okay, this thing, well, this is going to keep me happy for a while, so, you know, I can live with that for a while, but then, okay, that's going to start to fall apart. So what's the next thing? What's the next thing I can construct so that I'll have the happiness? We think that arranging our lives to have, like, stringing together moments of happiness, moments of getting rid of things we don't want, moments of having things that we do want, that that's the best that it gets. That's as good as it gets. So we are seeking happiness in inherently unreliable things. And in some level, we know that. At some level, we know that the happiness that we're creating is unreliable. And this is why we're on this like hamster wheel of what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And the Buddha discovered that that form of happiness actually keeps us tied to this endless dissatisfaction because as we are constructing this world of, oh, what's the next thing? We're in a state of feeling of dissatisfaction. At the moment that we want something, dissatisfaction springs up. The moment that there is a sense of wanting, there's an inherent sense of lack. And so we're living in kind of a continual state of lack. And the Buddha found a different way. Taking what is not self to be self. This one I'll just give an example for from my own experience. When I was, before I started practicing, I was a pretty miserable person, you know, and I real I knew I was a miserable person. There would be moments at times when happiness would kind of come through. But, you know, that would happen and the mind would go something like, well, yeah, I'm happy now, but I know what I really am is miserable. I was completely identified with this miserable person. I complete belief in its reality. It was a full-blown, you know, self. That's who I was. Miserable. Through the practice, I began to understand that miserable person was a construct and that miserableness was a state that had causes and conditions. It comes, it goes, There's nothing inherent about that miserableness. So this taking what is not self to be self, for me, that's what I was doing. I was taking this miserableness, creating a whole construct out of it, and then saying, that's me. So we do this a lot. We do this kind of thing a lot. We take what is not self to be self. So these misunderstandings actively impact how we relate to experience. We go around believing that we can find happiness by holding on to things. So as we begin to explore our experience with a concentrated mind, as we turn towards our experience, the concentration begins to be able to, basically we're, we're noticing change, we're noticing, turning that concentrated mind towards change. We begin to deeply, deeply 
understand the impermanence of experience. Nothing lasts very long. Nothing lasts for even more than a split second. Experience is ever-flowing and ever-changing when we drop below the level of concept. We see this in our experience. It's a truth that we, we witness. We see that it's our own minds constructing this belief in permanence. It's our own minds constructing this sense of permanence. We see it as a fiction, a useful fiction perhaps at times, but it is a fiction. So the concentration begins to reveal this to us. It reveals the unsatisfactory nature of experience. It reveals the, because we see the, the changing nature of experience, we see that there's nothing that we can really hold on to. There's nothing out there that would be reliable. It's all just slipping away, slipping out of our grasp. The, the attempt to hold on to things that are impermanent creates this, this, this dukkha, this, this suffering. And we also discover, actually one of the things we discover in terms of what we hold on to as we turn our concentration towards our experience, we discover that we are holding on not to things themselves because there's no way to hold on to things that are just changing There's no way to hold on to them. But what we are holding on to are concepts. So we are suffering over clinging to something that our own minds have created. This is quite a revelation when we see it. Not only is our suffering created by clinging, Our own minds construct what we cling to. Seeing into the not-self nature of experience, essentially this is um, revealed through beginning to see that things are a process Again, it's all related back to the impermanent nature of experience. That impermanent, because of the impermanence, things are unreliable. In that impermanent, flowing, changing experience, there are causes and conditions. Things arise, they create causes, there are effects. There's, the effects then create more causes, and it's just this flow. It's kind of like dominoes, you know? Dominoes, you know, domi- you set up dominoes in a, in a set of series and then tap the end one and then just go, they just collapse. It's kind of like that. There's a process that's happening in our experience, a process of cause and effect, a very lawful process of cause and effect. The very lawfulness of that process of cause and effect, I think, is part of also what obscures this um, truth of not-self. Because the lawfulness of the unfolding of experience makes us believe that there's something here. There's someone here that's deciding and choosing and doing. So if we kind of explore this through the, the, the analogy of a, of a seed growing from a tree... You plant a seed and water it. You know, there are conditions. There's, there's the water that nourishes the seed, the, the soil where it can draw the, the nutrients from and the warmth of the sun. All of these conditions come together for the seed to sprout. And then there's more conditions that have to come into play. You know, that, that little sprout needs to not be walked on or trampled over or eaten by animals. So more conditions need to come into play for this seed to turn into a tree. If the tree is in favorable conditions, it will will be grown, it will age, it will unfold into a full tree. But there's no being there directing that process. It is simply a lawful unfolding. 
based on causes and conditions, that tree comes into being or it doesn't come into being. It's very similar with this process that we call me. We are an unfolding of process. and unfold. There's a stream there of unfolding cause and condition. There's no abiding entity. And what happens as we turn our concentrated mind to our experience, we begin to see this. We begin to see the cause and effect nature of our experience. We start to see how as I, as I turn my mind to attending to the breathing, it supports a cultivation of various conditions. So there is some, some kind of agency. There's not a being there that has that agency. That agency is a product of causes and conditions also. We see how intention leads to results. We see something creating the arising of, a, of an intention. An example of this that, that kind of maybe illustrates this, as you observe your experience, you may find you're sitting here in the hall for a long period of time and um, there begins to be a feeling of pressure in your bladder. That feeling of pressure produces some discomfort. That discomfort produces the intention to move. The intention to move produces a movement to stand and we're off to the bathroom. So there's this unfolding. We can actually begin to see that, you know, we would typically think, oh, I need to get up and go to the bathroom. I've decided to do this. And we, we impute an, a self to that. We impute a me to that, that I need to get up and go to the bathroom. But when we start to observe our experience in this way, just noticing what happens, what is, the, what is arising now? What does it condition? We see it's like dominoes falling. The pressure in the bladder conditions the intention to relieve that pressure, which further conditions the intention to move, which further conditions the intention to stand. It's just cause and effect. We start to see this. So the concentrated mind starts to reveal the truth of our experience, inclines us to not cling to our experience. This undermines greed, aversion, and delusion. It undermines ignorance. Because we see in direct experience the futility of trying to hold on to things, the futility of trying to arrange things to be the way we'd like them all the time. There's a beautiful quote from a Tibetan poem Grasping the ungraspable, we exhaust ourselves in vain. That is what we see. We see the fact that these things are ungraspable and the exhaustion that results from the trying to grasp. The mind learns that very deeply and starts to let go of the greed, of the aversion. The ignorance begins to be swept clear. So these insights, in my own experience, these insights are revealed to us gradually. I remember in some of my early retreats, I kind of was sitting there waiting for the mind-blowing insight after which I would be liberated. And, you know, I've had a few pretty amazing insights. I could probably count them on a few fingers. Um, mostly my experience has been that the unfolding of this practice is gradual. Gradually beginning to see into the changing nature of experience. Gradually beginning to understand how I'm holding on to things. So wisdom develops gradually. This understanding, this sweeping away of ignorance usually doesn't happen in one mind-blowing insight. 
there's an analogy that the Buddha offers about the path of practice that I love. I love this analogy because it really speaks to how my practice feels like it's unfolded. He talks about um, the process of the unraveling of the way we grasp things, the way we cling to things, as being kind of like, he says, imagine a shipwreck. There's a ship that's crashed and, you know, all the parts of the ship are strewn on the beach. There's the rope, the rigging there, there's the, the wood, there's all of the, you know, the various parts of the ship lying on the beach. And he says, you know, the sun, the sand, the wind are like our mindfulness, our effort, our concentration that are gradually wearing away at those parts of the ship. And for me, you know, thinking about this analogy, I think about the rope that's on the beach. You know, each day, if you went out to that beach each day and looked at that rope, you wouldn't see much change. But come back a year later, you pick up that rope and it falls apart in your hand. Because gradually, over the course of the year, it has been being worn away by the water, the sun, the sand, the wind. Our practice unfolds in a similar gradual way. We may not see how gradually it's changing. But we understand at some point, we, be, we can begin to see by looking back, actually. Sometimes we, we're in a situation with a coworker or a partner and we've been, you know, practicing meditation for five years or something and we're in this situation and we recognize, wow, you know, they just said something that I know that five years ago I would have flown into a rage about. And, you know, it's okay. There's not a problem here. I see that my partner is motivated by their own struggles. I don't need to take this personally. So we start to see small ways in which our minds have shifted. So a lot of, a lot of the, to me actually, a lot of some of these insights are kind of revealed when, we, when I see that they're not happening anymore, when I see that the kind of clinging and grasping isn't happening anymore, I didn't actually see things fall away. It wasn't like a blinding flash and suddenly, well, that anger is no longer going to happen because I had this blinding insight into it. It's just a gradual letting go. And one day it's like, wow, where's that anger? Doesn't, I can't find it. So as we cultivate concentration, I want to talk a little bit, only have a few minutes left, and I think I'll just use the time here about talking a little bit about how the practice of concentration supports us with insight. Temple talked about this a little bit the other day, actually. As we construct concentration, as we practice concentration, the mind learns a lot. The whole process of of moving into concentration, how we learn, how our minds can be relaxed and attentive, there's a lot of letting go that happens there. We see how we grasp onto the breath. We learn that doesn't work very well. We learn how to let go of that. So there's a lot of learning around craving and clinging that happens as we work our way towards the state of concentration. We learn about what we cling to and how, how to let go of that. A lot of, us, a lot of you have been talking about you know, clinging to, wow, I had this great sitting and oh, I really want it back. Yes, we do. <laughs> That's part of our work here. You know, it's not a mistake that that happens. It's very natural that that happens. And we can't just say, oh, not supposed to do that. Be with the, the breath without clinging to that state. We can't do that. We need to learn how to be with that grasping. Learn how to let it be. Learn how to let it go. Those tools that Sally mentioned, allowing, avoiding, accepting. I can't remember. Attending. 
So we also learn from the purification process that Temple so beautifully described that as we open, and we've been talking about this in the, in the practice discussions, as we open, as our hearts open, we move into a kind of a, a, a place where the heart is not grasping for a few moments, a place where the hindrances fall away, and it feels like everything is okay. That opening allows things that have been held, things that have been tight underneath, it gives them room to start to move. And they come up into the surface. So this is also not a mistake. This is part of this process. One of my teachers, Michelle McDonald, talked about this rhythm of purity and purification. Purity and purification. We have moments of purity, maybe even minutes of purity. And then often the rhythm is hours of purification. (laughs) So learning how to be at ease with that process is another big letting go. You know, letting go of, well, I want it to be this way. What's my, you know, our agendas, letting go of our agendas, our plans, what we wanted our retreat to be. This is my retreat, this purification. So there's a lot of letting go that happens as we move towards concentration. Then as the mind becomes more stable, as the mind stabilizes and we get more of the feeling of minutes or even a whole sitting of concentration, that stability of mind can then be turned towards changing experience. And this is the shift from concentration to insight. We turn our minds towards changing experience, begin to witness the flow of experience. Directly turning the mind, inclining the mind to see into impermanence, unreliability, not self. Another, and I'm doing this so briefly, and we'll probably talk about this over the coming days more also. So this is just the first of this pointing towards how we turn towards insight from concentration. As we might, some of us might start to move into actually deeper states of concentration, into, into the deeper um, states of jhana. Another way to explore, in the state of jhana itself, there's very little change happening. That, that's the place where the mind really whoo, comes to stillness. So there's not a lot of change happening in the state of jhana itself, but the state of jhana being impermanent, an impermanent phenomenon, will fall apart at some point. And as that state falls apart, the mind is in such a state of concentration that it can turn towards looking at the impermanent phenomenon that are disintegrating around the state of concentration. So essentially looking at the dissolution, the disintegration, the impermanent nature of concentration itself. This is one of the ways the Buddha taught about using concentration my teacher Tanisaro Bhikkhu says that the concentrated mind, it's both, the, it's, it's, it's the ideal, it's one of the, the, the beautiful places from which to practice insight because the mind itself is concentrated enough and the state itself has enough um, uh, conditions that have come together that we get, get to see in the dissolution of that experience how it all dissipates, how it all falls apart. So we watch the, the way the mind dis, dis, lets go, deconstructs, 
the state of concentration. So we begin to understand the ephemeral, the unreliable, the impermanent, the not-self nature of that state itself. So mostly our insights are impermanent. (laughs) Concentration, mindfulness become balanced. We move into a place where the mind is seeing clearly. Wisdom begins to uh, be cultivated and nourished. The mind can see into something so clearly I've had these, I'm sure you've had this experience too, or many of you have had this experience of being in a state where it's just so clear. It's like, how can I not see this? How can I not see how impermanent things are? It's so obvious. And then an hour later, you see it's not that obvious because the mind has changed state. The mind has moved out of that place where the concentration and the mindfulness are balanced and clear, the wisdom strong. So the balanced state itself is a result of causes and conditions. It is also impermanent. But the key thing that happens, even though even though we can't live in that space of insight. You know, when you see into something so clearly, you see, oh my gosh, that, that thought, you're a failure. It's just a thought. It has no, no bearing on anything. It's just an arising blip of neurons. You see into that. No belief arises around that thought. And there's a sense of, wow, wow, I really understand something here. This thought is just a thought. It doesn't have any reality to it. And yet, a few days later, the thought comes up, you're a failure, you believe it, it's, oh, I'm a failure. And it's not so clear. But what has happened is that we have for a moment seen through those misperceptions. For a moment, we've seen through. In our own experience, we've seen through these misperceptions. In a moment, we've seen the impermanence, the unreliability, the not-self nature of experience. That seeing through in direct experience is something that doesn't go away. We can't necessarily live from that space and, and know it in direct experience, but we can remind ourselves, we can use that knowledge that we have gained to remind ourselves, okay, yes, here's this thought, you're a failure. It's just a thought. That doesn't necessarily put us into the space of seeing it as just a thought, but it can offer some space. Allow us to not be quite so jerked around around it. So, we have deeply seen into, with these small insights, we see into how our perceptions are distorted. And that's a fundamental shift. That, that we have seen that. These are distortions. So even if we're looking through this lens and seeing things as dist- distorted, we at least know, yep, I'm seeing things as distorted. So these insights turn our minds to the direction of non-clinging. I'll finish with a, a few more quotes from the Buddha. These insights towards non-clinging, not freeing ourselves from ignorance, letting go of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is the perspective this sutta is talking to the extinction of greed, the extinction of hatred, the extinction of delusion. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and nothing remains to do. 
just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind. Even so, neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is the mind, gained is deliverance. This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for your attention. We have about 25 minutes for walking and then we'll come back for our last sitting together with some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.